0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Over the weekend, the 10th Annual Reagan National Defense Forum convened at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California, and we had an opportunity to remotely connect with Dr. Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, and Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall to discuss what the Defense Department is doing to rebuild the defense industrial capacity that they and others maintain is key to deterrence, reward, innovative new suppliers, and artificial intelligence. First, we'll hear from Dr. LaPlante, then Secretary Kendall. But first, a word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Here's our conversation with Dr. Bill Laplan. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an honor and pleasure welcoming you to the program.
1: Yeah, thanks, Fargo. It's always great to be here.
0: Um, For decades, uh, analysts have been saying America doesn't do industrial strategy well uh, and that the government shouldn't be in the business of picking in uh, winners and losers. But, but we pick winners and losers, and certainly you have uh, through your uh, career with almost every acquisition uh, decision we make. And we can be very industrially strategic when we want to be. We had expected to see the administration's new and first ever defense industrial strategy to be rolled out at Reagan. Why do we need a strategy and what will it help you do That you're not doing already
1: yeah thanks thanks about yes so the strategy we're it should it'll be out in the next few weeks it should be out very soon um we need it because as everybody knows the strategy allows you to make decisions make decisions not just about what you're going to do but what you're not going to do and also in the case of this industrial base strategy we have in there um why it's important that we have to change in other words what's the price of not doing anything and so we need it because we had we have a national defense strategy in 2022, which has in it reinvigorating the industrial base. And we said, OK, now it's time to put the national defense industrial strategy that lines right up underneath it to say this is where we're going to go and what we're trying to do. And it is four kind of principal areas of, of work that we're trying to do and, and where we're headed. And so that, that that was what's really important. And then it allows you to make decisions and align your investment on uh, into the right direction.
0: Um, You're one of the leaders who's always maintained that a strong industrial base is actually a strategic deterrent. We've heard that same uh, message coming from other senior leaders as well. And you've been uh, working tirelessly uh, to basically achieve that aim. But we've got a lot stacked against us. So even though Doug Bush is making progress on artillery shells, almost everything we're trying to do, you know, there's a 36 month backup in the supply chain. So, I mean, you know, even if we start to do stuff, delivery doesn't come in another three years. We don't have the floor space. We don't have the machinery, uh, and we don't have the trained people. So, if we're trying to send a deterrent signal, some worry we're actually sending the exact wrong signal when adversaries look at us and say, "Look, whatever you've depleted in in Ukraine is not going to be refilled soon."
1: Walk well, actually, through. yeah, there's work for work to be done, of course, and and you're you're right about the challenges, but it's it's actually. A, a better story, for example, at this year at this Reagan Forum that was even a year ago, um, that the talk about the 155 is an exemplar We talk about a lot. We're going to quadruple quadruple the production rates there. We're increasing production rates on Pack Three, on Gimblers, on Standard Missile Six. We have uh, at least five, if not seven, multi years in that we're waiting for the supplemental to or the and the President Budget will approve to go after those. We are there's breaking ground happening across the country. At adding production lines, we've engaged not just with the primes and the subs, but we've also pumped hundreds of millions of dollars of defense production act aid into lots of uh, sub tier of the supply chain, including socket rock ro- solid rocket motors. Right. So there's a, actually I'm, there's a lot of hope now. I think you know we have to stick with it for a few years, but right. we have put uh, we have put thanks to the supplementals, we have put. 40, 50 billion, depending on how you count it, into the industrial base by the direct programs, but also the underlying structures. Now, as far as the long lead times that you talked about, 30 months, plus everybody has that. Industry, commercial has it. What happens, though, is you just typically don't see it in the commercial world because companies buy things in bulk and buy ahead. All we're asking for from Congress is to let let us do the same thing. Otherwise, if you fund munitions every year to year, by definition, you're not going to get what you funded in one year that you've made a decision on until two years later. So if you can buy it in the first year, then then we get out of that cycle, and that's what we're trying to do with the multiverse.
0: Uh, you you took that question in exactly uh, the the right way of sort of explaining to us all the stuff that's uh, happening because I think people sometimes have a tendency of sort of losing losing track at that. One of the things you're also trying to do is to harmonize all the stuff, so that each of the services aren't doing stuff in their own silos. Talk to us about what are some of the cross-functional elements that you're bringing to this. I know that there's the Joint Production Acceleration uh, group uh, that that you've got, but at the end of the day, how are you helping everybody and everybody helping each other in this process, right? Because Doug Bush has got some stuff that the Navy can use, just like Andrew Hunter is doing some stuff uh, that would be really uh, useful uh, to the Navy.
1: Yeah, so I'll just say that we talk all the time, every week. So we're all talking to each other. Um, we talk. We talk when we meet with the companies, even though there's bilateral. We also bring them bring them all together when we meet individually with the companies. So when we have a discussion with any of these companies, there's somebody either Doug Bush himself or somebody from Doug's Andrew himself or somebody from Andrew ASN RDA and the Space Force. Right. So we are very coordinated to talk about all of those things. And then when you look at the underlying components, solid rocket motors are the poster child of this. We're all working together because across so many of the munitions and capabilities, including space and and missiles for even the modernization of the triad, involve solid rocket motors. So that's something we are all working together on. It's all it's actually very close to coordinating.
0: I I want to take you uh, to how we actually increase production, because too much of what we uh, make now. Uh, is, is not really designed for mass production, at least at the rates that we need them to Right, Stinger missiles still had hand wound works of art, uh, artisanal, uh, gyros in them. What are some of the things that we need to do to actually productionize some of these designs? Is there a cost? I mean, do we go back in and re-engineer and recertify or do we, do we do this by just going to a new generation of weaponry that's, that's more easily
1: produced? Yes, yeah, so I think it, I think it's case by case but broadly speaking you're correct. We uh, if we have designed for production it was 30 40 years ago and and the production technique may be completely out of out of date. So what we do what what I'm trying to do now by getting people to focus on production is first of all you make it part of the source selection itself during the beginning of development. You also have the manufacturing uh, technique and then you have the company bid on the first five or six lots. So they have to set a price in of, of large numbers, and if people want to have an acquisition strategy approved that just does the development, but maybe we'll do production later, I'm not going to approve it. That's what we do at B21. Remember, right. the the award was not just the EMD; it was the first five lots, which they're building right now. So that's a key principle. The second key principle is numbers matter, and so if if uh, if a program comes in and it's uh, and it's designed in a certain way, I I want to answer questions about what does it take to scale it where where's the factory, where's the, there was the capabilities, how much automation do you have? And I wanna see curves on getting to high production rates and cost to it, even if we decide later on not to fund them. I want people to do the work, also put together what CapEx is required, CapEx is by the government or others. And so my theme all along these last couple of weeks when I'm talking to everybody, particularly in the UAS and counter UAS world, which is highly in a prototype mode is say, I'm not interested in prototypes anymore, only. Right. I'm interested in showing how can you produce a thousand of those a year 3,000 a year I want to know what the unit cost is I want to know what the ramp of production is to get to that and if and and come back to me on it and come back thoughtfully um, and it's causing people to think differently that's what we did in the hard munitions area we just gave these incredible goals on 155 Gimbler's pack 3 and and industry came back and showed us after falling out of their chair initially about the question and showing us how they can do it so you have to you have to push it from the top.
0: How much of a role is there for purely commercial industry on this, right? I mean, obviously people go to World War II examples and certainly a lot of Cold War examples. Do you think that's that's something that's practicable, right? I mean, this is a criticism a little bit on Replicator. It's unrealistic to think that a Ford or a General Motors or somebody could do this. Whereas actually, if you go to the companies, they they tell you we could pretty much make anything you guys want us to make.
1: Yeah, so for, we, we don't talk about this enough and we should. Um, as we we're ramping up for Ukraine, we did reach out to the automobile company, sat down with them, went through various plants that they have with excess capacity, looked at their production lines and look at what would it take to adapt their production lines for our equipment. And we found some very promising, um, very promising ideas uh, and concepts with production lines not not active with the car companies. It came down to some details which we need to work out, which is I mean, it's going to come down to something as simple for forgings, for example, that a car company might do. We might want to need to do the the forging vertically, where they can do they they do it horizontally. Okay, the question is, can we adjust that for our munitions? And so, the it's industrial engineers that are going through all of that. But I think there's a tremendous opportunity with the car companies and and other places like that. The other solid rocket motors, is an example, the big mixers that the solid rocket motor uh, uh, developers use mostly come from the 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 industrial cooks and restaurant industry right back in fact, in fact they're they're the, the the place that makes one of the big mixers the dod is one percent of the market 99 percent of what they build it for are uh our restaurants and food places so we we use a commercial a lot more than people realize i think we need to be uh, just more creative and just not just assume uh it can't be done anymore and when when we went to the car companies for ukraine they were they were wonderful to work with, and we're and we're working with them right now.
0: Um, I, I know your uh, time is precious, and I've got uh, two more questions uh, before our time uh, is up. I want to ask you what you're doing, right? So we, there's a lot of munitions uh, work that's going on, and obviously, right, if you've it, it doesn't matter how great the F-35 is if it's got nothing to be able to launch uh, at an adversary to reach out and touch them. At the end of the day, one of the other challenges we have is we don't have the capacity to build or repair bigger things, whether they're aircraft, ships and vehicles at any rate at which they're likely to be damaged in a future conflict. I know that there is industri- submarine industrial base money that's going in and, and some other investments. Talk to us about what we're doing for the big muscle movements, whether it's at shipyards, whether it's at aircraft plants, because ultimately we've also got to be able to build the planes, the ships and the vehicles in a, in a conflict.
1: Yeah. So first, um, we call we yeah we call it the organic industrial base. Think of it as like the depots and the shipyards. As you said, we're putting a lot of money into those. Like we put a billion dollars this year into the the depot stand ups for F thirty five around the country. Number one. Number two, uh, we are putting a big emphasis on uh, on international uh, what we're calling distributed uh, maintenance uh, and repair. Uh, organization or sites around europe and around the pacific honorable loman asds is going to roll out next month in an announcement actually this month excuse me um our our plans for the regional sustainment both in the pacific and in europe and we've already are in conversations with nato about setting up the european uh heavy maintenance overhaul capabilities and uh, on early next week the ukrainians many ukrainians 90 companies and their government is coming to washington dc and one of the discussions there is how can we set up both in ukraine and around europe ways of doing maintenance and heavy repair over there without having to send equipment back to the united states so we're doing all the above
0: last year you drew uh, a little bit of flack for talking about tech bros and some people uh uh, uh, you know thought that you were being critical of silicon valley um uh, you weren't you explained that what you were trying to say is you need you know folks to be able to scale and to produce this stuff in the kind of volume that you guys ultimately need right as opposed to uh, bespoke or kind of interesting technology demonstrators
1: by the way some of these companies like you mentioned are doing incredible work including for ukraine so no no Uh, Yeah, the the point I'm I'm making, which I think people are getting now or going, not that they didn't get it before, is is focus at production at scale, and focus on making sure it's for a meaningful warfighting problem. Don't just get and and I say this as a technical person because this is something in my technical career that I've always had to struggle with. Even personally, is don't get enamored with the technology by itself. Right. Uh, It it it's if you if you only get enamored with the technology and you miss the bigger picture. It doesn't help. And so I'm trying to get people to focus on that. And I think people are. Right. You know, you you you, you think about the end use in mind and think about the market, and it's just really that that's the point.
0: You know, Andrew just revealed the Roadrunner, which is a brilliant, small, vertical launched, unmanned aircraft. It's fast, it's rangy, it can do strike, reconnaissance, electronic warfare, and even air defense, and it's autonomous. So it can come back if it's unused, be refueled, and be able to be used again. But too often Bill, we end up in a situation where it's either the requirement or, well, you know, we've got to compete that even if somebody's built a better mousetrap. Ultimately, what are some of the things that you're doing and and the things that you're doing with the acquisition executives to actually grease the skids that if somebody put skin in the game and brought that idea to you and it scratches a specific itch. And especially if Polymer is right, that you know this is low hundreds of thousands of dollars and they can get it to much cheaper than that, ultimately, right to your unit cost uh, issue. How, how do we do this to encourage these guys? I mean, you've been on this mission, Bill, for like 15 years, right? Bring innovative guys in, increase competition, but also accelerate uh, the innovation that you can push out to the force. What are some of the things that you're doing to make sure that those outcomes, those right outcomes happen? For the guys who who may have built a better mousetrap,
1: yeah. Most important issue right now, in the last fifteen years, is that we now have an urgent, urgent operational problem that is here now. Now we could have criticized ourselves and said we could have seen this coming ten years ago, and so we have we now have it, and and we have to get the, the appropriations get through the Congress. But if we can get the appropriations through, we'll have the resources. If we don't have that, none of the rest of this. M- Matters, right? So that's number one is to make sure we have that environment, which we were able to get for Ukraine with the stuff we did there. Point one. Point two is I am well aware of what these companies are doing. I'm talking to them all the time. Um, what I'm actually very encouraged is they're doing exactly what we have asked them to do. Now, in the case of some of these, I've come I've asked them and they've come back to me and I've said, okay, I want to see the curves and of producing, say, in the thousands, how quickly you can get. Up into the thousands. I want to see what the unit cost does, and uh, I want to see uh, what that can be. And they're they're providing that now to us and the SAEs. It's pretty soon. I think we're going to be um, of this is, if you will, it's it's frankly market research right. that shows what the various options are out there. Now think about what we're talking about. Really, is the space of UAS and counter UAS. Okay, those are both urgent, urgent, you know, uh, break glass problems right now. And they they need to be solved at scale, meaning in the thousands. So we've got to get these really cool things that companies are doing for their credit, and we need to get them into production at high number of rates. And to the no fault of the companies, the U.S. government has not generally funded these at high production rates. Most of these are prototypes. So what I'm doing is, is building the homework of what would the high production rates cost, how long would it take so we can start working with the Congress to start getting these on contract. Now, the act strategies of how the competition is done and how the down done, we can figure that out. There's different ways to do that. Um, you could do, uh, you know, you can do IDIQs where you will issue task orders. You can pick, you can pick three, you know, you can have, uh, you can compete it and pick uh, three different teams. You can do lots of things. But if you don't have the money, it won't matter. The requirement is pretty straightforward. On the offensive UAS side, it's typically around, I mean, there's different tiers, tier one, two, three, four, five. They each have a different level it's a range it's usually a survivability against jamming and it's a payload slash warhead size um basically that's it um that those are the requirements and and then the cost per unit those are the things that that matter on the defensive side it's effectiveness cost per per unit and how and how it would work uh against uh swarms um and and then of course the the production and the numbers that it can be produced in It's not going to be that. That's not that hard to do. And and then the other piece of it, though, in both the offense and defense is how quickly can be updated as the threat evolves by modularity or software. Those are the kind of the requirements that are needed to be done.
0: Folks have a tendency of seeing the administration as as bi-American, but you've been engaging with allies and partners as has the whole department. What's the role of our allies and partners in helping scratch all of these itches, whether it's for us or helping us help them feel better capability in the future?
1: Yeah, well, we're number one, we're uh, working very hard on co-development, uh, co-production, co-sustainment, co-development like the glide phase interceptors being done with going to be done with the Japanese for hypersonic defense, Co- co-production like the uh, in Australia with the Gimblers and with Prism and in Europe with, with some other things, India, Striker, uh, and then uh, co-sustainment, these regional MROs that I talked about that are going to be around the world. The Buy America thing is important, but a couple of points that I like to make, one is the, the demand between partners and allies for what we need to produce is gigantic. And where we are today in terms of our ability to produce across the world is much less. So it, 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 we don't have the problem of, oh, we have to do production. Should we do this here or overseas with a partner and friend? The answer is yes, we need to do both. And so the other piece of Buy American is there's a provision in Buy American that if you meet these criteria, countries can be uh, be waived for the Buy American if they have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, series of criteria in place. And we have many countries that we're able to buy from that will satisfy the Buy America. So it's, it's not, a, it's not really an issue right now. In fact, I, I tell people that, uh, you know, it's, a, it would be a nice problem to have. We have so much of a demand around the world with our partners and allies in here. And we have ways to do the Buy America Act um, that it's not really an issue right now.
0: Dr. LaPlante, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us. We really appreciate it and wish we could conduct this interview uh, in person. And hopefully we'll see you again uh, in the building soon. I hope you and yours have great holidays between now and then.
1: OK, you too, Ivago Take care and have great holidays. Thank you.
0: And we also spoke with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall. Here's our conversation. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Good to be with
2: you, Avago. Thank you. I
0: want to uh, start with uh, industrial strategy. Um, you and the entire uh, leadership, uh, Dr. LaPlante, and, and even the secretary have talked about the importance of industrial capacity uh, and the industrial base and production as a key element of national uh, deterrence. Uh, and you've been talking about that a long time, and indeed, you've always made the case that we should assume that any war that we get engaged in, even if it's with the Chinese, may be a longer war, as as that's what history has has taught the administration is about to issue its first ever industrial uh, defense industrial strategy obviously you uh, there was input from you and everybody else on the team from the standpoint of the air force secretary whose obligation and responsibility it is to uh, you know man uh, train and equip the force what do you need this industrial strategy to do and the tools it gives you that you don't already have to be an industrial steward of of the part of the industrial base that touches the air force
2: well, I think the first thing we have to really accept is that we have limited flexibility. Uh, we just don't have the resources to do everything we'd like to do or anything close to it. Um, most of our resources that go to industry, and there's a lot of that, are are committed to um, the development of the systems we're trying to acquire and the acquisition of systems we've we've we've, bought, we've begun acquiring. Um, Once you do that, there isn't a lot left over to apply to other needs. So we need to do a few things in there, right? One, I think, is that we need to have um, a risk mitigation strategy, if you will, which looks at the, which hedges against the possibility of a long war that we do not anticipate. I mean, job one is to deter. Job two is to defeat aggression if it occurs, and to prevail operationally. If that doesn't succeed, if both of those fail, then we can find ourselves in a longer conflict. Now, I'm talking about a serious conflict with a great power. I'm not talking about a counterinsurgency. Uh, I'm not talking about a lesser uh, uh, power that you know, it might take us some time to get the capability that we need, but we would get it, and we would do what we had to do. I'm talking about something more serious than that. And you also have to keep in mind that uh, if we're talking about great power competition, we're talking about nuclear powers. Right. So the idea that we need to be prepared to fight World War II over again with nuclear opponents, I think is is not, not sound. What we do need to be prepared for, to some degree at least, is a conflict that extends longer uh, than we anticipated, but stays to some degree constrained. Uh, Ukraine situation, even though we're not direct combatants, as an example of that. You can imagine a conflict in, let's say, Korea or uh, Taiwan that had that characteristic. And hopefully that the, the major parties involved would be able to not avoid widening the war beyond the near-term engagement, uh, the, the more constricted engagement. Right. So what do you need in that case, right? You need the sort of things that we're finding that we need against ISIS or against, uh, against Russia in the case of Ukraine. Uh, some of our more significant munitions and ones that can be acquired in significant quantities, uh, as well as some of the more high, high-use parts that we would need to keep our assets operational. Uh, I, I think those are the sorts of things we should think about first and foremost in an industrial policy. The other thing I think we should think about is the economy. And what do we need to do from an industrial-based perspective to have the strongest economy we can? And the CHIPS Act is a good example of something that has dual-use applicability. It's fundamentally pointed at strengthening our economy and making us economically more competitive. Uh, But it also has the uh, the benefits of strengthening us militarily. And part of the resources under the CHIPS Act are going to be allocated towards if not dual use, uh, even more more uniquely military products that come out of that that type of our uh, type of technology, microelectronics. So I, I think that's the kind of thinking and strategic intent we need to apply to uh, considerations of the industrial base.
0: I want to uh, take you uh, to uh, the question of uh, deterrence, right, because uh, for any uh, idea to have a deterrent effect, uh, it it has to be undergirded by capability. And there's a little bit of concern now that we're not moving as fast, uh, even though the department is moving uh, just about as fast as it can with industrial constraints and spending an enormous uh, amount of money to try to achieve it. And I asked Dr. LaPlante a similar question where he ran down all of the things uh, that are happening. From your standpoint, what are the things you're doing to accelerate production and increase, increase industrial capacity, not just for weapons uh, production, Mr. Secretary, but also to speed the delivery of new platforms, uh, as well as support old ones, right? I mean, almost on every vector, you're not buying new airplanes as quickly. Certainly, the the tankers aren't coming as quickly, uh, and in part, it's not abundantly clear whether there's any more capacity there. What are all the things you're doing on each one of these metrics uh, from the weapon side of the equation, all the way to the hardware side, the heavy, the heavy iron part of it.
2: Yeah, a few things, Roger. One is to accelerate getting things into production as much as you reasonably can. Uh, I've seen a lot of attempts to do that that were unrealistic and led to longer delays than uh, would have would, would have occurred anyway. Um, the the uh, the the way we capitalize production, right, and to get to the tooling and the production lines that can support larger rates than we would we would anticipate, if needed, so that we can surge if the situation changes. Uh, that includes not just the final assembly of our products, but also the key components that contribute to them. So again, prudent planning and risk management and hedging against uh, for circumstances that might occur that you can't foresee. Uh, And we have to be selective about that. We can't do that for every commodity that we want to buy. Now, I mentioned a couple earlier that I think are important on that list. Um, We also need to limit our requirements so that we simplify the products that we're buying so that it's easier to produce them at higher scale. Um, And then the last thing I would add is we need to take advantage of opportunities that the commercial world provides us to do things that scale and to accelerate production. A great example there is in space where the future of space is going to be, to a large extent, about larger architectures with a lot more components, a lot more satellites that, are, that constitute them. The sorts of things that Space Development Agency is doing. Our new missile warning uh, architecture is one of those. And the commercial space world has given us an opportunity there to build satellites that are much more affordable and can be, that can be built in larger quantities and relatively quickly. So we need to take advantage of that. Uh, and a good part of that is, is changing our, our approach to writing requirements and doing designs.
0: You, uh, noted at the Reagan forum that NGAD, that people don't understand how quickly NGAD, uh, is going to get fielded, uh, right. Because you want to send a message on this, uh, and then also have a very accelerate, uh, very, uh, muscular approach to delivering, uh, the, uh, collaborative combat aircraft, uh, as well. Um, Aside from programs like that, that will serve a deterrent function, as you look at what are the most important things you need faster, what are the most important things that you do need faster?
2: Today, I would say the things I need faster are advanced munitions. Uh, Getting JADM into production is very important to me. We need to modernize our long-range strike capabilities, so B-21. is very important to me. Uh, CCAs are very important to me. They're going to be an important force multiplier, whether they're fighting... uh, under the control of an NGAT platform or an F-35 or an F-15. So getting those into production quickly. And at, as a case in point, the, the CCAs uh, are going to be, their, their design is relatively simple. NGAT is actually going to take longer because we're putting a lot more functionality into that aircraft. You know, it's our right. next generation crewed fighter, uh, and it's going to have a lot of capabilities on board. The, the CCAs, which will be more treatable, more expensive, They won't be expendable. They're not ammunition. We're not going to expend them like ammunition, but we're going to be willing to lose a fraction of them in order to achieve uh, tactical objectives. So because of that, uh, we want to keep them affordable and we want to simplify the requirements as much as possible. That all allows you to produce greater quantities to do them at scale
0: let me um take you uh to uh you know some of the comments that you also made at the Reagan Forum uh you and Andrew's Brian schimpf uh, were on the same panel and were quite a dynamic duo and almost finishing each other's sentences um huh. Andrew was one of the companies that was born uh when you were last at the Pentagon uh in the drive to create more competition uh, and also be able uh to harness uh, innovative approaches and innovative companies and Android has been putting its own money uh, to develop products and one of them is the Roadrunner a fascinatingly brilliant unmanned system jet powered uh, high subsonic speed long range and able to do strike reconnaissance electronic warfare or even uh, air defense um, and you know autonomous can land take off be refueled and and be reused what are some of the things you're doing? Uh, right. Because you've said like, you know, and you said the same thing Dr. LaPlante has said, right? The time of prototyping really, in some respects, we, we need to get stuff into production. What's the right approach for companies that have actually done their homework, putting skin in the game? And if Palmer Lucky is to be believed, this is going to be a relatively inexpensive capability. Um, what are you doing to sort of foster those uh, uh, um, approaches and actually get them fielded? and reward them with with contracts as opposed to saying, okay, well, you got a better mousetrap. Now we got to start from scratch to try to figure out a way, you know, to create a requirement for it and then to create a competition. What's the right way to do this?
2: Uh, That's a great uh, intro to a fascinating topic. Uh, I've I've watched what Andrew's doing um, and I've talked to their leadership. Basically, the commercial approach to selling products is you come up with an idea that you think will be attractive to customers, and you build it. And if they like it, you were right, and they and you make money. The military uh, approach more recently in particular has been you wait for the government to put out an RFP, and then you try to put in the lowest bid for it. Um, but you don't invest in the product until the government uh, tells you it's going to buy it and it's going to pay for your R&D. It's a very different approach, right? And right. we've sort of accepted that latter approach is our normal way of doing business, and it's a very low risk way for industry to, to, to operate. So the the problem you have doing that for government for defense products is that you've only got one customer, and if that customer doesn't like what you're what you build, you you're going to have a loss. Um, in the commercial world, you have lots of customers, and whatever features you put on the thing that you're you're building and you're At your own expense, uh, you're probably going to find some customers that like those features and will buy it. The government's a more monolithic uh, customer. It's much harder uh, to predict. There's also we've been, as you said, stability has not been one of the features of how we do things. Uh, Last spring, I made an uh, announcement at uh, one of our conferences that the planning figure we were using for collaborative combat aircraft was a thousand. And I put that out very intentionally to send a signal to industry. We are serious about this. We're going to buy a lot of them and it is worth your while to invest in this product to try to give us a superior product. We're also interested in speed to market. So if you can move out on your own and produce a product that we want, um, you're, you're gonna be in pretty good shape. And that's what Andrew has attempted to do. Um, I really applaud that. I would love to see more companies taking that approach And investing that way instead of buying back their stock and just returning cash to their investors, uh, uh, that would be better for the country. And I think you can make a good case that uh, it could be better for the investors in the longer term. Uh, The government has a burden, though, of trying to communicate as clearly as possible what types of product it will buy and how many of them it intends to buy. And then following through on that. Uh, a great counterexample was a program that a uh, company still exists, it's called Sail Drone. It was one of the very early DIU products that people found interesting and put a little bit of money against and bought a few prototypes. The company expected that the Navy was going to buy hundreds or even thousands of sail drones, and I think we bought three. Right. Uh, that, you know, you can argue whether uh, we should have bought more or not. Um Um, That's that's an argument I don't want to have right now. But the point is that when when the government misleads industry or gives them false hope and then doesn't follow through, it really discourages the type of approach we talked about a moment ago. Uh, So we've got to be a lot better at that. Um, I think it would be quite a transformation to get to that point. The other thing that's true about our products is that um, they tend to be very complicated. They tend to be high risk. Uh, If you want the next, you know, sixth, seventh generation fighter plane that's going to be a a decade ahead of anything anybody else has out there, that's going to be loaded up with attractive features that are, you know, interesting to the uh, and and cutting edge and involve the integration of complex new technologies that haven't been built yet. That's a high risk endeavor and it's going to take time to do it. Uh, Taking a long time to get a return and doing high risk adventures are generally not attractive things for industry. And so, again, it's about the products that we decide to buy uh, and and how we go about buying them. The fact that we buy things in relatively small quantities uh, so that the future return isn't there uh, also discourages investment by industry. And when you take a look at one that we're working on right now, uh, where industry made a very big commitment, the KC-46 tanker, uh, Boeing has taken a real bath on that uh they they came in with aggressive pricing they want a fixed price development contract and by the way industry does not commercial industry does not do fixed price development it does discretionary involvement development uh on its own nickel and it can and it and it pays whatever it takes as long as it's worth their while to pay it uh that's not fixed price uh they certainly try to control their cost definitely they definitely do that so anyway again it comes back to the government working well with industry, making decisions that it sticks to, picking products that will provide a return to industry that justifies an investment by industry. Uh, the other thing the government does that makes it hard for industry is we pay relatively small margins uh, right. because we're paying we're using taxpayer money. We spend we pay on the average of about 15 percent or so, even less. Uh, defense companies make about 11 percent on uh, the larger ones, and. Uh, that's not a hugely attractive return, particularly if you've got to put a big upfront investment in and wait quite a few years before you start to make sales.
0: Your panel was an AI uh, panel, uh, and you've talked uh, about AI and, you know, your uh, DNA, which is uh, engineer, soldier, and human rights lawyer. So for you, the balance of AI and safety is important, but you also note the single most important element of AI is speed and decision-making because wars are won by fast, good decision-making. And we have an adversary that's going to be using that technology nefariously. One of the ways, unfortunately, that whether it comes to AI or software is not as integrated, uh, perhaps, as it should uh, in the way the services make the acquisition of a platform. Uh, What are things in your mind, especially as we go into this AI age, on how we need to think about the architectures of what we do, understanding that actually the most important element is the information piece of it. Perhaps that's even better than the physical performances of whatever the platform or 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 the system is. Are we approaching this the right way architecturally as we prepare to make a revolutionary potentially revolutionary series of leaps in in technology and
2: capability? Um, we haven't been thinking about it the right way, in my view. Let me give you a, tell you what I mean by that. Um, there's good news and bad news about integration of AI into military products. The good news is it's going to happen no matter what. It's going to happen very quickly. Um, I've seen it in industry. The young engineers are going to work for defense companies, are bringing their knowledge about AI with them. Uh, They want to go work on those technologies, pattern recognition, machine learning, et cetera, even generative AI. So the new technologies that are coming out of our grad schools and even our undergrad schools are going to be applied to make more competitive products. Uh, And there's a level though of application that is sort of invisible to the user. It basically just gives functionality to the user much more efficiently. And and that's very much welcomed by the user. It makes, take radars example, and the processing associated with radars or fusing different sensors on a platform or, or multiple platforms. Technologies that do that better and present data that's more integrated and more current and more reliable to a user are gonna be welcomed by the customer and highly competitive. What is not gonna be so welcomed by the customer are things that change the way the customer operates. And I, we will have to have users, operational people, who are comfortable living with automation of tasks they have traditionally performed manually. And I think that's going to require some cultural changes on the operational side of the house. Uh, the point I made today, and that you you summarized, I think, is very valid. If we don't give up some of that direct manual control, we're going to lose. Uh, we're we're going to lose badly. The there are a number of analogies I can make, but um, I'll, I'll give you one that I, that I use. If you think about the training ranges that, that policemen work on where they go on a live range and they, and they get pop-up targets, and they have to very quickly decide, is that a threat or is it a kid with a baseball bat uh, that I don't, definitely don't want to shoot? And they have to make snap decisions, and they don't want to shoot the wrong thing. They want to definitely shoot the right thing as quickly as possible. It is very easy to imagine a world in which machines will be infinitely better at that than people. Right. And when that's sort of the type of decision making you're making in war fighting, you have to turn that decision over to the machine to win. Now you have, now you can have a human there monitoring this. You can have a human there who will shut the machine off immediately if it sees it making mistakes, who will intervene and take control. If, uh, if the enemy has done something that was unexpected, that causes the machine to make mistakes. But you have to be prepared to accept uh, living with and working with that kind of automation. And you can, you can extrapolate that to lots of other military types of decisions. Uh, there are people whose, whose jobs, uh, intelligence analysts, for example, uh, certain types of, of planners that are involved in fire, planning fires, who are going to see a large fraction of their job disappear. And they're going to have to accept that. And we're going to, the, the, the sooner we can move into that, the better. I have a next door neighbor who moved recently. who was a radiologist. He recognized, there was a question on the panel about medicine. He recognized as a radiologist that the machines doing pattern recognition of the things he was trained to detect are going to be much better at it. They're going to be much faster than he was. They're going to be more accurate. And what you'll use the humans to do is to review the work of those machines particularly any di- difficult cases where uh, the machine has an anomaly it doesn't understand and calls that the attention of the of the physician um right. that's the sort of thing in a way you know, a ver- version of that that we're talking about in the military world um, and so and it's true in general of various artificial intelligence technologies that that jobs that traditionally required well-trained professionals human beings are going to be replaced by, uh, largely by machines. There'll still be a role for humans, but it's going to be a different role. We're going to have to make some adjustments because of that.
0: I uh, particularly like your uh, story in 1973 being a Hawk battery commander on the East German border. And uh, the the Hawk had an autonomous mode that anything that didn't respond positively to IFF, it would automatically engage and shoot down. It's just that that's not how the system was used.
2: No, it was never going to be. We were never going to take a chance on that failing. Um, and we never did. We never used it operationally, of course, but we did a lot of drills and we never even drilled with that capability and you can do it. It it can be more sophisticated than that. You can program, you know, the heading, the speed, you know, the altitude. There are other controls you can put in besides simply an IFF return, identification friend or foe. Uh, but that's a very, that's, that's direct computing. That's very simple, straightforward computing to do that. Um, what we're talking about in a, in a much more confused and many on many kind of a scenario is, is more difficult than that. Um, uh, And against an enemy who's working very hard to try to confuse you that, that automatic control system would not have worked well in a jamming environment with a lot of false targets. Right. Uh, But again, that, that we're in a competition uh, with our most capable adversaries and China's first on that list to field, Better and better sets of capabilities that make it harder for the other side and easier and more effective for your side to prevail. And that's just the world we're living in that we've been living in that world for a while. We just haven't. um, I, I don't think we've stepped up to it as much as we need to.
0: And, and one last question, although you did note that you admire how the Chinese are willing to, uh, you know, uh, do really out of the box things to uh, practice them a little bit like the Soviets used to do uh, during uh, during the Cold War. And at least the hawk is having a resurgence, sir. So how about that? Uh, how about that? Uh, let me ask you one last uh, very quick question. Uh, when it comes to AUKUS, uh, the focus tends to be on nuclear powered submarines for the Australians or cooperation on cyber and hypersonics, uh, AI or quantum. Uh, but now there's also a space component to this agreement uh, that the, uh, that's the that been announced. What does that mean for the uh, United States Air and Space Force, uh, as well as uh, our allies and partners?
2: We're looking for opportunities to do projects under AUKUS. The, the technology framework for AUKUS is pretty broad. It did have several areas that were specified, but we also do a lot of bilateral uh, and, and multilateral co- cooperation and development outside of AUKUS. So I am I'm encouraged by that. I I think broadening it and making it part of the agreement at some point, adding additional partners to to the AUKUS agreement, I think is interesting. Um, So we're going to be fully engaged and finding opportunities to work together with our partners under that under the space uh, umbrella, as we are under all the others.
0: Sir, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you and yours have terrific holidays and look forward uh,
1: to working together again in the new year. Thanks so very much.
2: Same here. Good, great to talk to you, Michael.